I've been told by those who remember such things that uh, I was a bit of a wimp when I first went to primary school. A much-loved aunt once told me something I didn't remember at all, but I trust her memory, that I'd uttered these words as a small boy. My mummy doesn't like fighting, and I'm not very keen on it myself. <laughs> well, maybe it's no bad thing wanting not to get into physical brawls and to live a, a, a peaceable existence. But in the Christian life, spiritual warfare can't be avoided, not if we're going to live a godly life. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it sometimes so hard to live a consistent Christian life? How come I can be so lackadaisical in Bible reading and prayer? Why do I get such a hard time from friends and neighbours and even from family when I take even the most tentative steps, baby steps, to sharing my faith in Jesus? Well, the answer, as Paul laid out clearly to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, is that we're engaged in a spiritual battle. A battle against an enemy that's hard to pin down because it's unseen. For our struggle, says Paul, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If we don't grasp the force of this, then what are the consequences? Well, we will slide into living lives of compromise and spiritual flabbiness. We won't grow as Christians if we don't wear the, the well-known spiritual armour itemised by Paul, you know, the belt of truth, the breastplate of place of righteousness, the shield of faith, and so on. If we don't put these on, then we, so, we won't be in the fight at all. So we're called on to opt out of being spiritual wimps and get with the fight. But what do the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms look like, and can we make any meaningful impact on them? That's where our Bible reading comes in, 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 in Revelation chapter 12. A couple of things to say about the book of Revelation. First of all, just to orientate ourselves if you're not very familiar with the book. First of all, it's not an easy book to understand. That may be a bit of an understatement, but that doesn't mean that we should just downplay it. Doing that would mean depriving ourselves of uh, an important part of God's word, uh, a, a part of God's word that's specifically meant to be a great encouragement to believers, especially at times of opposition to the Christian faith. We read reports from time to time uh, of someone finding a great work of art up in the loft. I don't know if you've ever been lucky enough to, to find that, something that's been forgotten, it's been ignored for years, with the owner not realising that it's actually a painting by one of the great masters. Well, this book is inspired by the greatest master. And we're the ones who miss out if we relegate it to the attic of our minds. Second thing to say, it's a type of literature with which I guess we're pretty unfamiliar. We know the difference between prose and poetry, 
both of which are in the Bible. But this is a different category of writing, hence its strangeness. It's called apocalyptic. Now, the first readers of the book would have been familiar enough with its style, um, as they would have known the book of Daniel well, and in Daniel and in other places in the Old Testament it is used. Um, you may remember in Daniel the first six chapters are fairly easy to follow. Um, the various trials of Daniel and his friends and the fiery furnace and so on and so forth and not bowing down to the statue. But when you get to chapter 7, it's a bit different. Things are quite different as this is the apocalyptic style. It's using symbols to convey things. The archangel Michael, referred to in our passage, described by Daniel as the protector of the symbolic protector of the people of God. He makes an appearance there at the end of the book of Daniel, as he does here in Revelation chapter 12. And that's our clue, really, the fact that he's a symbol. It's a, a clue for understanding the book of Revelation, symbol or sign. Um, by the way, if, if you would like a, a very easy-to-read, reliable guide to Revelation, can I wave this little book around? It's called The Lamb Wins. Because basically that's the plot of the book of Revelation. The Lamb of God, Jesus, the Lamb wins for Richard Buse, Christian Focus, uh, in all good bookshops. I'll leave it in the front here um, if anyone wants to clock it later. It's uh, really helpful and gets us into the flow of the whole book. Well, the book of Revelation may have become a playground of the cults, as it has, and subject to all kinds of weird timetabling about the end of the world and so on and so forth. But the real purpose is simply, as I said before, one of encouragement in times of trial and persecution. Using fantastical picture language instead of straight prose or poetry. It's there to help us understand what's really going on behind the scenes in the unseen world. This chapter, uh, chapter 12, is, is at the centre of the book of Revelation. And uh, so it's really quite key to its overall message. You'll probably be aware that at the start of the book, in chapters 2 and 3, um, we have seven letters Letters from Jesus, from the risen Jesus, inspiring the, uh, John to write them. Seven letters from the risen Lord Jesus to seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They're usually thought of as the prologue to the rest of the book. But I think the late Professor Jim Packer was right to say that it's actually the other way around. Rather than the prologue to the rest of the book, the letters are the main thing. They describe the various problems that can uh, arise in any church and in any age. Lukewarmness, pride, materialism, immorality, and so on and so forth. The rest of the book then can be seen as a long appendix to the seven letters to explain what's happening behind the scenes, to explain the spiritual nature of the battle that's going on behind the scenes when spiritual problems in churches arise. And so to our chapter. We're introduced to the various players in this heavenly drama. Verse 1, we read, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. The woman is pregnant, and in verse 5 gives birth to a son, a male child, 
described here as one who, quotes, will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. The very words used in Psalm 2, Psalm 2, uh, a messianic psalm, which the New Testament writers ascribe with confidence to Jesus himself. So, if the man-child is Jesus, doesn't that mean the woman must be Mary? No. No, because that's not the way apocalyptic writings work. We need to get into the mindset. The woman is not Mary. The clue to her identity is that she's clothed with the sun, moon, and stars. Now, to those who knew their Bibles, back in Genesis 37, Joseph, the whole of Revelation is stuffed with, with Scripture, References. Back in Genesis 37, Joseph shares his dream with his unreceptive brothers. He said, I had this dream. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down before me in the dream, uh, representing my mother and father and all you guys, and you're all going to be bowing down to me. Now, of course, that happened in Egypt eventually, but at the time they were not receptive to this message. The point for us is that this symbolizes the 12 tribes of Israel, the covenant people of God. The woman clothed with the sun, the moon, and the stars stands as a symbol for Old Testament Israel. It was this people who gave birth to the Messiah later on in the chapter, as we'll be seeing. The woman also represents the covenant people of God today, the church. And then there's another player in verse 3, a sinister one, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns in its heads. We're told down in verse 9 exactly who the dragon represents. We don't need to work out the puzzle. The ancient snake called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. And the whole world is being led astray, isn't it? All the wars, all the destruction all the violence, all the greed, all the crazy laws that some parliaments pass. Anyone can see that this is not the way it's meant to be. The dragon is powerful. Seven heads with seven crowns symbolize his authority as the prince of this world, as Paul calls him elsewhere. And the ten horns symbolize that he deploys this authority with very great strength, but not universal strength. On, only one third of the stars in this picture language are swept out of the sky, not the whole lot. So there's a limit to the dragon's power. And we might well wonder, well, can we Christians really overcome a foe like that? If this is the foe that's trying to pull us down to, to make us not follow Jesus as we should, to not, follow, to not follow the wrong crowd, but to follow the right crowd. Can we really overcome a, a, a foe like that? Well, yes, we can, as we'll be seeing in a moment. But in the meantime, we're confronted with this grotesque image in verse 4, where the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, that it might devour her child the moment he was born. I don't think we want to see the movie of that. Which, of course, reminds us, though, how the life of the infant Jesus was nearly snuffed out by King Herod right at the start of his life in one of the more stark passages in the early chapters of Matthew's Gospel. And then in this chapter, the, the, the writers 
pressing the fast forward button so that we move straight from Bethlehem to the ascension of Jesus. Boop, just like that. Uh, without so much as missing a beat in verse 5. And the child was snatched up to God and his throne. So John knows that there are other scriptures that tell us about the life and, and death and resurrection of Jesus, not least his own gospel. So here is the, pa- is the picture fast-forwarding. Meanwhile, what's happening? The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared by God for her where she might be taken of, taken care of for a specified time. That's all that this 1,260 days means. Puzzle, language, technical note, time times and half a time. That means a year, two years and half a year, so two and a half years. That's the same as 1,260 days. Um, it's not a literal time. It's not a literal time, since all the numbers in, symbol- in Revelation are symbolic, not literal. There won't just be 144,000 believers in heaven, believe me. That's a symbol involving lots of twelves. <laughs> you know, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, all that. So time, time and half a time. Uh, two and a half years, uh, 1,260s. It just means that there will be periods of safety in the church. There will be periods of safety in the church as well as periods of, of persecution. Nothing lasts forever in this life. And God does protect his church. She may be protected from time to time as, as Jesus uh, uh, she may be persecuted as well as protected. Sometimes the church is persecuted. Uh, as Jesus himself said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it when I establish my church. There may be setbacks, but the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so then in, in these first few verses, verses 1 to 6, we've seen the background as to why we Christians often face struggles in our faith. Maybe some of you are struggling this morning. Maybe uh, you're facing outright opposition. Why is that? We're in a spiritual battle. Well, from verse 7 onwards, we see how this plays out first in heaven and then here on earth. A battle which is always in play during the entire Christian era and will be until the Lord Jesus comes again at the end of the age. It may seem strange that war breaks out in heaven with the archangel Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. We think, well, what's the devil doing in heaven at all? Surely Satan can't be there. Well, Satan is traditionally thought of as an angel who turned bad, who rebelled and fell from grace. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan fall from heaven. But perhaps we can just read the location as the heavenly realms in the title of the sermon. In the heavenly realms, there's a struggle. The unseen world is spiritual warfare between good and evil. C.S. Lewis famously wrote in his book, The Screwtape Letters, that there are two mistakes that the human race makes about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. What? You can't believe in devils and things, surely not. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And that's why people are interested in tarot cards and Satan things and, and weird stuff. The forces of evil in this world are real enough. And the Bible tells us that behind it all is a malign being 
who opposes God, who has rebelled against God, and all that is precious to God, especially the church. But that being is not somehow equal in strength to God. No, for in the words of our passage, the dragon was not strong enough, and he lost his place in heaven and was hurled down to the earth. That in itself is a cause for the writer to break off, uh, as in many other cases the book of Revelation. He breaks off to say this, to praise. He breaks off to have a wee psalm. I heard a voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. Perhaps we're more familiar with the similar wording in the previous chapter, immortalized in Handel's Messiah. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now that second one uh, clearly refers to the second coming of Christ when everything will be put right at the end of time. But this reference in chapter 12, yes, after the previous one, refers to Jesus' first coming. How come? Because it centres on the death of Jesus on the cross. That's how the, the dragon was defeated and cast down by the blood of the Lamb. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. You know that little voice inside that tells you that you're no good as a Christian. The one that niggles away saying, well, some of the others in the church, they're, they're doing all right, but you're no good. Saying what a waste of space you are in the church. That's the accuser. That's the accuser who also accused Job before you. Satan is called the accuser. But the accuser has been hurled down. Don't listen to him. Resist the devil and he will flee, as James wisely said in his letter. How do Christians then triumph over the accuser? It's written right here in verse 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb simply being the symbolic picture of the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross for our sins. How often do we have to keep coming back to the cross? Every day. As the old Christian writers used to say, keep short accounts with God. In other words, don't run up a whole pile of unconfessed sin lasting days and weeks and even longer. No, no. Keep going back to the cross for forgiveness. Remember, when the accuser says you're no good, you say, I've got one who thinks I am good enough to die for, even though I'm bad. <laughs> I'm worth dying for, I'm worth something by the blood of the Lamb. Don't run up a whole pile of unconfessed sin, keep going back to the cross. That's the way we get our sins forgiven. That's the way we resist the niggles of the voice of the accuser that says, you're no good. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Yes, our testimony being witnesses to the Lord Jesus to those who don't know him. I don't know about you, but I don't think this ever gets easier. But it is possible 
I guess you folks might have been acquainted with Thomas Day, young minister, now in Carlow. He's got an excellent little book about witnessing. It's called God is God and You Are You. <laughs> Just very briefly, remember, you know, God is not some guy that's going out of fashion and is irrelevant. He's actually God. And you are not the person next to you. You're not your pastor. You're you. And God knows that. And because God is God and you are you, it is possible for you to be equipped to give testimony to those around us. They overcame by the blood of the law of the Lamb and the power of the word of their testimony. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and all who dwell in them. But then there's some less welcome news for us. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil's going down to you. He's filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. That explains a lot about what's happening to many of our fellow Christians in different parts of the world today. Just take Nigeria, just in the past few weeks. Terrible things have happened that you won't hear about in the TV news. 16 Christians have been murdered in Benue State. That's not even in the far Muslim north, that's in the middle. A Christian pastor murdered, his wife abducted, a ransom demanded. Five Christian girls prevented by the Sharia police from going to church. What's going on? He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. The suffering of believers, though real and painful and inflicted by powerful opponents with machine guns down there, they're just symptoms of the dragon's desperation. Now, here in Scotland, we don't face persecution on that scale. Perhaps I should say, yet. Is it impossible for us to imagine that we might face something similar in times to come? The, revelation, the, the message of Revelation 12 is that we should be ready, forewarned. That's why the book was written, to forewarn Christians of the coming persecution that we should be ready if it ever comes to that. But even if we don't face that kind of persecution, the Christian faith definitely faces uh, uh, aspects of hostility from many quarters in this country at the present time. You don't need me to tell you that. And you might ask yourself this, how come any religion or ideology in Scotland today seems to get a free pass with the sole exception of biblical Christianity. Why is that? Well, surely this too should not surprise us if we pay attention to the message of this chapter of God's word. His fury is great because his time is short. Well, the final few verses just replay in a bit more detail what we've already seen. The dragon pursues the woman, which we can think of here as the church, but she gets taken care of, escaping on a giant eagle. It's something like Lord of the Rings, you know, Gandalf gets rescued by giant eagles, all that kind of stuff. This figure of speech goes right back to the Old Testament, Mount Sinai, where God reminds the people before he gives them the Ten Commandments, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you 
to myself. Now, <laughs> they didn't actually literally go on eagle's wings, did they? But it's a great way of describing how God can protect and, and take us out of trouble. The woman is flown to a place of safety in the wilderness, out of reach of her pursuer for a specified time, two and a half years, time, time and half a time. But uh, remember, not literal, just a specified time. You see, the dragon is now referred to as a snake. Hard to keep up in this uh, type of literature, isn't it? And he's not finished with the woman yet. From his mouth, the snake spewed water like a river. What comes out of our mouth? Words. In this case, the devil's lies, trying to sweep the woman away with the torrent of lies. The lie that the Christian lives a stunted and restrictive life. So many people believe that lie today. When the truth is that only the Christian knows true freedom from sin and selfishness. The lie that the church is just going to die out as its detractors fondly hope. When the truth is that Jesus has promised that the very gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But the torrent of lies, as you'll see, doesn't sweep the woman away. Because the earth opens up to contain the flood, and neither should we let the devil's lies get to us. The final image is that the dragon is enraged at the woman, who, remember, is the covenant community of faith, and goes off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Now, who might that be? We're told. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So the rest of her offspring, that would be you and me. Well, in closing, what do we learn from the extravagant imagery of this chapter? First, that spiritual warfare is real. If we deny that, we're deluding ourselves. There is an unseen realm behind our daily living which Paul correctly describes as involving spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Second, that sometimes the opposition to the gospel is violent and murderous. This helps us understand what's going on in some parts of the world today, where the church appears to be on the back foot, although persecution didn't stamp the church out in the early days of Acts. And it won't stamp the church out today. The devil is filled with fury, but he knows his time is short. Thirdly, that spiritual warfare comes to every Christian. All of us at times are weighed down by thoughts that we're not much good at Christian living. We need to remember that that's just because the accuser is on our case. We resist the devil and he will flee. And fourthly and finally, all spiritual warfare comes down to this, to remembering the central place of the cross. This is how we overcome the evil one. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And may that be an encouragement to us as we seek to testify to those we've invited to the carol service we'll be meeting over Christmas time. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, keeping their consciences clear, and by the word of their testimony. May that be true of all of us this morning.
Let us pray.